Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, as that video reminded us in a pretty powerful way, uh, we are in the midst of a sermon series right now. Uh, We started this series last week. Uh, We've entitled it, Help My Unbelief, Help My Unbelief. And uh, as a reminder, um, the purpose of these messages is for us to grapple with difficult questions of faith. You know, the truth is, uh, there's a tendency among some people uh, to ignore questions, to suppress questions, But we don't want to ignore questions. We don't want to suppress questions. Uh, We want to do just the opposite. We want to embrace questions, tackle questions head on, because questions are a critical part of life, right? Um, I remember one time when I was about uh, five or six years old, uh, my parents decided to take uh, my brother, my sister, and me uh, to Lion Country Safari. Now, how many of you, by show of hands, have ever visited Lion Country Safari? Okay, lots of you have. Um, I'm not sure if this is true anymore. In fact, I don't think this is true anymore. But at the time, I believe, it was Florida's only drive-through safari. And so the whole premise is you stay in the car and you see all the animals from there. Well, uh, Lion Country Safari is located in Loxahatchee, uh, just north of West Palm Beach. And as a lot of you know, I grew up in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, And so Loxahatchee is a good hour and 15 minutes from Fort Lauderdale. So I remember as a kid, I was just feeling antsy and impatient and anxious and excited, uh, just wanting to get to Lion Country Safari and wondering why this car trip was taking forever. To me, it seemed like it was taking forever. Well, uh, we finally got to the park. We saw the animals, took pictures, had a good time. And then later on that night, uh, my mom was tucking me in. She was putting me to bed, and she asked me what I thought about the trip. And I said, Mom, I had a really good time at the park and just seeing all those animals. That was fun, but that car ride... That car ride was not fun. That car ride took forever. And my mom nodded her head and, you know, to indicate that she empathized with me and she understood what I was saying. And just before she turned off my bedroom light, in a very innocent way, I had these big eyes. I asked my mom, Mom, is that why they call it Line Country Safari? And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, you know, safari, so far away. Thank you for laughing at that. (laughs) And actually, I was not trying to be funny. I was not trying to be humorous. I was being completely serious when I asked that question. As a five-year-old, six-year-old, I didn't know what the word safari meant. I actually thought it meant literally so far away. Kids ask a lot of questions, don't they? Parents say men, grandparents say men, aunts and uncles, those of us who have been around kids. Kids ask a lot of questions. That's something Amanda and I have come to discover as uh, parents of two kids who are almost four. Uh, Kids ask lots of questions. Ralph B. Smith, um, who's a writer, we have this up on the screen, he made the observation, I'm not sure where he got this from, but he made the observation that children ask on average 125 questions a day. Now maybe he's underestimating how many questions they ask, but he said they ask on average 125 questions a day. Adults, on the other hand, only ask six questions a day. 
which means somewhere between childhood and adulthood, we ask 119 questions less a day. And that's unfortunate, isn't it? Because questions, folks, are how we learn. Questions are how we grow. Questions are how we discover things about the world around us. My question about the word safari, yeah, it seems silly to me now as an adult, but as a small kid, that gave me the chance to learn what the word safari means. And so questions stretch our imagination. They expand our thinking. Um, going back to the sermon series that we're in right now, Help My Unbelief. Again, we are giving ourselves permission. We are allowing ourselves to ask those really difficult questions of faith, those questions that sometimes keep us up at night. And so uh, the question that we talked about last time as we kicked off this series had to do with Christian behavior. Why are Christians hypocrites? And if you missed that message, uh, you can catch it online. Uh, you can find it on our YouTube page or on our Facebook page. The question that we're going to tackle this morning as a congregation is going to be more philosophical. And the question is up here on the screen. Let's read this together on the count of three. One, two, three, go. Is free will worth all the suffering? Is free will worth all the suffering? And here's what I'm getting at with this question. I'm going to put this in a very direct way. A number of Christians, including us here at Asbury, I want to be clear, this is what our church teaches. Uh, this is what the United Methodist Church teaches. A number of Christians believe that God has built into every human being what we would call free will. Now, to be fair, the Bible doesn't use the term free will, but then again, the Bible doesn't use the term trinity. Just because the words aren't there doesn't mean the teaching isn't there, the concept isn't there. Uh, we do believe, based on our reading of Scripture, that God has built into every human being free will, which means that as humans, we are free creatures. We are free to decide things. God does not determine our every action and our every move. Now, on the surface, free will seems like an amazing gift, doesn't it? It's nice to have choices. It's nice that we're not puppets, and God's not the cosmic puppet master just pulling the strings. It's nice that we're not robots whom God programs to do whatever God wants us to do. It's nice that God gives us the ability to make our own choices as we go throughout our lives. And yet, folks, as remarkable and incredible as free will is, we can't help but acknowledge the atrocities that free will has led to. For instance, Europeans had free will. And yet, beginning in the 1400s, some of them went to the coast of West Africa, and they kidnapped the women and the men who were living there. Then they brought them back to Europe, later on took them to America, and forced them to live as slaves. That was the start of the transatlantic slave trade. Adolf Hitler had free will, and yet he orchestrated the Holocaust, which led six million Jewish people to lose their lives. Joseph Stalin had free will, and yet historians remind us that Joseph Stalin, when he led Soviet Russia, he probably killed more people than Adolf Hitler ever did. Jeffrey Dahmer had free will. Charles Manson had free will. These are names you weren't expecting to hear in a message, right? But they had free will, and yet they became two of the most infamous serial killers in American history. Timothy McVeigh had free will, and yet he put together the Oklahoma City bombing. Osama bin Laden had free will, and yet he was the mastermind behind the September 11 terrorist attacks. Uh, I could give more examples, but I don't need to. You get the point. Uh, given all this hardship, I mean, the question that we have to wrestle with is, 
is why did God give us free will in the first place? Is free will even worth it? I mean, when God, if God knew what God was doing when God created us and put us together, why didn't God simply remove our capacity for choosing evil, thereby sparing the lives of millions upon millions of people over the years? Uh, about seven years ago, uh, I read this book entitled Letters from a Skeptic. The subtitle is A Son Wrestles with His Father's Questions About Christianity. Letters from a Skeptic. A Son Wrestles with His Father's Questions About Christianity. Uh, the book contains a series of letters between a father and son. And uh, just like the title says, in these letters, what the son does is he takes up his dad's questions about the Christian faith. Uh, the father's name is Edward. Uh, he has since passed away. And the son's name is Gregory. Uh, Gregory is a Christian. Uh, he's a theologian, pastor, teaches at a seminary. And at the time, his dad was not a Christian. He considered himself to be an agnostic, um, somebody who's not sure what he thinks about the Christian faith, not sure how he feels about God, uh, the existence of God. And so Greg invited his dad into a conversation about the Christian faith. And I would commend this book to you. It's a great resource. Well, in one of the letters that Edward wrote his son, he actually brings up the topic of free will and suffering. This is what he writes. This is directly from the book. Dear Greg, one asks the question, the wisdom of a creator, who would wager so much for freedom. Is it all worth it to create a world in which madmen like Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin can use their freedom to take away the freedom and the lives of millions of others is, quite frankly, very poor management. If he, that would be God, if God values freedom so much, why the hell, his dad just tells it like he sees it, why the hell did God make it so tenuous that the will of one could destroy the freedom of millions? Is the whole thing worth it? Freedom's nice, but I don't know if it's worth all the evil and pain we see in this world. If you could talk to the Jewish victims of Auschwitz, they would say to hell with Hitler's precious free will. Sorry to be such a tough nut, but it seems like a valid question. What do you think? It's a good question. And to really tackle this question, that's what we're going to do today. To really tackle this question, we first have to think through who God is. Uh, my favorite writer in Scripture is the Apostle John. Uh, he was a follower of Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, he wrote the Gospel of John, as well as three letters in the back of the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Well, in 1st John chapter 4, in just a few words, John makes this really remarkable statement about God. Uh, this is what he writes, 1st John 4, verse 8. He also says this in verse 16. He says, God is love. Notice, the Apostle doesn't say God has love. He doesn't say God possesses love. He says love, God is love. And what that basically means, folks, is that love is the defining attribute of God. Love is the defining attribute of God. Love is the attribute that reigns over all of God's other attributes. Love is the attribute through which we understand, through which we comprehend God's other attributes, like sovereignty, power, might. Those are attributes of God. But we understand those attributes through God's love. Love is what governs God's actions. Love is what, what prompts God to do what God does. Love is what compelled God to make human beings in the first place because God wanted us to be creatures who could share in God's love, participate in God's love. But here's the thing about love. This is really important. Love can do a lot of things, can it? I mean, love can change this world. 
But there is one thing that love cannot do. There is one thing that love will never be able to do if it's going to be true love. What is that? Love cannot control. Love cannot control. Uh, this is what the Apostle Paul writes in his famous treatise on love, 1 Corinthians 13. Sometimes you hear this passage read at weddings. Uh, this is what Paul writes, uh, verses 4 and 5 of 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. And then what does Paul say? It does not demand its own way. Love does not demand its own way. So John tells us that God is love. Paul tells us that love doesn't demand its own way. From these two texts, we can surmise that God does not demand God's own way. Now, God is the maker of the universe. God breathed galaxies into being. God could demand God's own way if God wanted to, but doing so would contradict God's nature because love does not manipulate. Love does not coerce. Love does not twist somebody's arm. Love is all about freedom. It's all about freedom. Uh, as parents of toddlers, Amanda and I watch a lot of Disney movies. Now, truthfully, we would probably watch Disney movies even if we didn't have kids, because we do enjoy them. But uh, one of the Disney movies that we watched more recently, and this is a movie that both of us grew up on, uh, was Beauty and the Beast. And I imagine that uh, most of us in this room, if not all of us, we're, we're somewhat familiar, if not really familiar with the storyline of Beauty and the Beast, right? Just in case we aren't. The story centers around this young woman. What's her name? Belle. And at the beginning of the story, Belle finds herself a prisoner of this hideous creature, this horrible creature called the Beast. Now, Belle doesn't know this, but the Beast is actually a human being. He's a prince, but he's been transformed into a beast, and, uh, and so he's under this spell. And the only way for the spell to be broken and for the Beast to turn back into a human being is for somebody to fall in love with him. And so the Beast hopes that by keeping Belle a prisoner, what's going to happen? She's going to fall in love with him. Uh, that's going to break the spell, and then he's going to become a human being again. But then as the beast begins to open up, and he gets attached to Belle, and he grows to love Belle, he realizes something. Love doesn't have any prisoners. Love is all about freedom. And so we're going to watch a clip from uh, Beauty and the Beast, and uh, you'll see what I mean. Take a look. This mirror will show you anything, anything you wish to see. I'd like to see my father, please. Papa! No. He's sick. He may be dying, and he's all alone. Then, you, you must go to him. What did you say? I release you. You're no longer my prisoner. You mean I'm free? Yes. Oh, thank you. Hold on, Papa. I'm on my way. Take it with you, so you'll always have a way to look back and remember me. Thank you for understanding how much he needs me.
Well, Your Highness, I must say everything is going just swimmingly. I knew you had it in you. <laughs> I let her go. <laughs> yes, yes. Splend... You... What? How could you do that? I had to. Yes, but... But... but, but why? Because... I love her. It might seem silly to share a Disney clip, uh, just given the seriousness of some of the things we've been saying. But if we pay attention, there is some profound theology. There's some really good theology uh, going on there in that scene. That love doesn't have any prisoners. Love does not have any prisoners. Why did the beast let Bell go? Because he loved her. And love does not have any prisoners. Again, God could have made us prisoners if God wanted to, but that would have been contrary to God's nature. Love is all about freedom. But here's the other truth about love, and this is up here on the screen. Because love involves freedom, love is inherently risky. It's risky stuff. The beast took a risk in that movie when he loved Belle because it meant that Belle might not come back to him. And we take a risk ourselves whenever we choose to open up our hearts and love somebody else. I remember when I told Amanda that I loved her for the very first time. Uh, Amanda and I had our first date, actually, at a Barney's Coffee Shop on Park Avenue in Winter Park. Uh, that's where she and I met. And if I could be honest, I wanted to tell Amanda I loved her right away, because I really did love her right away uh, as she was walking toward me. But I didn't want to scare her. I didn't want to spook her. So I decided to give it some time. You know, I waited a day or so. I waited more than a day, but honestly, I think it was just a couple of weeks or so before I told Amanda that I was in love with her. And um, there was a part of me that was nervous, anxious to tell Amanda that I loved her because what if Amanda didn't say, I love you back? What if she looked at me and nodded and said, oh, well, that's nice. Thank you. Thankfully, that didn't happen, but that was certainly a possibility because love involves freedom. Love is inherently risky. It opens us up to heartache into suffering, into loss. How many of us in this room, how many of us worshiping online have ever suffered a broken heart because we've loved? And yet, folks, we continue to love, don't we? We continue to love. Why? Because we believe deep down in the depth of who we are, we believe deep down that love is worth the risk. Love is worth the risk. Well, let me ask us a question. If love is worth it for human beings, even while knowing all the risks that are involved with love, if love is worth it for human beings, how much more is love worth it for God? If love is worth it for human beings, even while knowing all the risks involved, how much more is love worth it for God? You see, folks, it's not that God gives us free will just to give us free will. It's that God gives us free will because God loves us. We can't have freedom without love. I'm sorry, we can't have love without freedom. And we can't have freedom without risk. God took a risk when God made us and put us together because it meant that we might not love God in return and we might not follow God. And when we look at the Bible, we see God suffering for that very risk again and again and again. Uh, a good example would be the story of Noah. Remember in the story of Noah? Uh, well, when the story first starts out, uh, what happens is uh, God makes human beings. He creates Adam and Eve and and Adam and Eve, who represent all human beings, uh, they rebel against God's love. Sin comes into the world. 
And then what happens next is sin gets worse and worse. Uh, after the human beings leave the garden, they fall further and further into sin. And it gets to the point that human beings are so bad and so corrupt that they're killing each other. Uh, they're wreaking havoc on this planet that God has made, that God has created and put together. And it gets to the point that God decides that he's going to send a great flood to wash the planet clean of sin. But just before God sends the great flood, this is what the writer of Genesis says in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry that he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. Now, some of us find that line disturbing, that God was sorry that he made human beings. I mean, how could God be sorry that he actually made us? But we need to read that line from the perspective of somebody who is loved. There are moments when we choose to love somebody, and when that person betrays us, when that person breaks our heart, we start to wonder, was love even worth it? That's what God is contemplating here. Was love even worth it? And yet clearly the answer God comes to in this passage is yes. Because God could have destroyed humanity right then and there. God could have stopped his heart from ever being broken again. But that's not what God did. Instead, God chose to spare Noah and Noah's family, even while knowing that Noah's descendants were also going to break God's heart. Love is worth the risk. You know, it's true that because of free will, we as human beings have the capacity for evil, credible evil. But it's also true that because of free will, or because of God's grace, we have the capacity for incredible good. Yeah, we have those who enslaved others, but we also have Harriet Tubman, don't we? Who led the Underground Railroad. Yeah, we have Adolf Hitler, but we also have Corey Ten Boom and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, two Christians who opposed Hitler. Yeah, we have those who passed segregation laws in this country, but we also have Martin Luther King Jr., whose life and legacy we celebrate tomorrow, who fought so hard to eradicate those laws. Yeah, we have Osama bin Laden, but we also have firefighters and police officers and heroic first responders who risked their own lives on 9-11 to rescue those trapped beneath the rubble. So yes, human beings have the capacity for evil, but because of God's good grace, we as Methodists call this pervading grace, because of God's good grace, we have the capacity for good. It's those moments when evil overshadows the good that we start to wonder if free will is even worth it. And maybe free will wouldn't have been worth it if when sin came into our world, God just stepped back and let evil run rampant. But that's not what God did, is it? Instead, in Jesus Christ, this is what Scripture teaches, in Jesus Christ, God confronted evil head on. And where did God do this? God did that at the cross. So what the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. It's up here on the screen. Paul says, in this way, he, that would be God, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authority. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them. Where? On the cross. Scripture teaches that there was a decisive victory that happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
that God took evil upon his own body. And then in rising from the dead three days later on Easter Sunday, God defeated evil forever. Not temporarily, not for a specific amount of time. God defeated evil forever. The whole reason that we continue to encounter evil in the present, including at the hands of others, some of you might be familiar with the name C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis once estimated that four-fifths of the evil that we encounter is because of other people. But the whole reason we continue to encounter evil in the present is that we won't see the culmination of that victory on the cross and through the resurrection until Jesus returns to set all things right, to bring the kingdom of God to completion. And so again, maybe free will would have been worth it if God didn't do anything, but God did something about evil. That something is Jesus. And here's the last point I want to make. Until Jesus returns to set all things right, and we believe as Christians Jesus is going to return, but until he returns to set all things right, we have the assurance that God is with us when we suffer at the hands of others. We don't have some God who is aloof, detached, far away. We have a God who is Emmanuel. He is with us in the most relational, intimate way. God swoops down, he picks us up, he cradles us in his arms, and he offers us his comfort and peace. There was this little boy who was three years old, and whenever he was feeling anxious or afraid, he would reach out his arms and he would say to his father, hold you, daddy, hold you. That's the three-year-old version of hold me, daddy, hold me. And so his dad would stop what he was doing, he would put down his work, and He'd pick his son up, and it didn't seem to matter what was going on in that little boy's world. Maybe he had had a bad dream, or uh, there was a thunderstorm going on outside. Somehow just being in his dad's arms was enough to know that everything was going to be okay. Well, the little boy grew up. He got married. And then one day he found out that his spouse had not been faithful and was actually going to leave him for somebody else. He was devastated. He didn't know where to go. But he decided to go see his father, even though his dad lived five hours away. So he got in the car. He drove all that way. His dad met him in the doorway. He just collapsed in his arms. And his father could swear that he heard his grown son, who was 35 years old, say, Hold you, daddy. Hold you. We have a God who when Jesus Christ holds on to us in those moments of suffering, and he never lets go. What a remarkable, incredible gift given to us by God. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, I know that this morning uh, we have gone into some pretty uh, tough philosophical, theological territory. So I pray, God, that you uh, just made sense of the words that I shared, uh, the words that you put on my heart, and uh, God, that if I didn't make any sense, that your Holy Spirit would just, uh, just make it clear to us that you have indeed created us out of love, you have gifted us with freedom, and even though uh, we screwed up and rebelled against you, and now there's evil in this world, God, that in Jesus you have done something. 
and you continue to do something. And we can't wait to see the culmination of that victory when Jesus returns. God, thank you for everything, for the amazing and incredible God that you are. And now as we continue to worship you in spirit and in truth, we ask that we would feel your presence with us in a powerful, mighty way. We pray these things in Jesus' name.